Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Raptors frenzy as their victory parade pretty much takes all afternoon long. A different type of march in Hong Kong as they're fighting an extradition bill involving China. And the Max 8 airplane will soon be in the skies, but not until further testing. An update on the way. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, Brianna, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I'm sorry. This has been something we've been battling with all morning because the crowd, they turned up in the masses and the cell service is just not there. It's amazing how when you have so many people in one area and they're all trying to do the same thing at once, how this affects it. Perhaps perhaps this celebration can somehow be used in an emergency in the future and to be better prepared us for this stuff. So anyway, you were saying, Brianna, what, what was it like when the parade came through? So I was at the very beginning. That's at Princess Gates, and that is the exhibition grounds. If you've been around this area, that's where it started. It made its way down the lakeshore, and the the energy in the crowd, it was just through the roof. I can't even begin to tell you. I'm losing my voice because I was cheering so loud when I wasn't doing the radio hits. It was just so much fun to be part of that energy. I have to tell you about the first uh, float that came through. Uh, it went through those prince's gates, and uh, it was uh, Baca on the very front of that. He actually had his back to the crowd, and the crowd did not mind because he was taking a selfie video, and the crowd just wanted to be part of that. They loved every second of it. And then seconds later, he just grabbed a champagne bottle, shook it up, and coated everyone in the front there with champagne. So it was just a sight to see right off the bat there. So tell us about the parade itself. Uh, I understand there's about five buses, double-decker buses. Who is all in the parade? How many vehicles are there? Yeah, of course. You got it right there. It's five double-decker buses. Those are the main ones that everyone can see. And uh, they had a few in front of that. Those were lower pickup trucks. And then we also had uh, the the Raptor superfan, Batya. He was leading the parade as well. Uh, So it was a a huge, huge celebration at the very front. And then after those double-decker buses that, of course, had all the Raptors on there, we saw Kyle Lowry, Jeremy Lin. We saw... Everyone, that they were just all part of it, all taking selfies, all interacting with the crowd. And then afterwards, you had uh, music. It was this, this amazing music that was being played by these young teenagers, really. They're part of a group. And uh, I have to tell you, the last part of the parade that nobody ever sticks around to see was the cleanup crew. And there was probably about a dozen vehicles that were in charge of that. So what? how long did it take for the procession to get past you? That's interesting because I was actually trying to follow it. As soon as the uh, double-decker buses were making their way, you could see the crowd just absolutely shift. And if you want to talk about like an emergency situation, trying to get people out of this area and following those double-decker buses, uh, it was so difficult. I I went with the crowd and you really had to get your elbows up and try and make your way through there because it was just so jam-packed. It was like sardines, really. So people, as the procession made its way through, were actually joining in behind it and following the parade. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, we were pretty thankful that the double-decker buses were just crawling along because that was the only pace that we could go at to keep up with it. Um, and then now I want to tell you about the other viewing areas that we have because I'm standing in front of Coronation Park, which is, again, also by those X-Grounds, just a bit further down. 
and there's this huge viewing party that's set up. It's it's really a great alternative for families because I see a lot of strollers here, a lot of young kids, and it gives them more room because really that parade route was just absolutely packed. And we know that Nathan Phillips Square is, is packed as well. There's just thousands and thousands of people. So if you are wanting to be a part of it, if you're in the area, come down to Coronation Park because there's a huge screen, uh, screen that you can see at the very front. They're showing all the interviews. We actually just saw an interview with Kawhi Leonard, and the crowd here was going crazy. Uh, he was saying that, you know, Toronto, we did it. We were, we're so proud to have you guys as fans. And you can tell the crowd really appreciated that. So so not only the party going on at Nathan Phillips Square, but along the parade route, there's screens set up, which will obviously work as viewing parties. So not everybody who can make it to Nathan Phillips Square, they'll be able to see it too. I would actually recommend it because there's a, a lot more room here. You can uh, go around in the field and, and there's different tents set up. There's uh, some food trucks in the back, a huge screen at the front. Nathan Phillips Square, we were listening to Jamie Tawil, my colleague who's there, and he said it is so uncomfortable because the crowd is just massive. You can't get anywhere there. So if you don't want to be a part of that, or if you love that, then by all means go that way. And if you want a bit more room, breathing room to be part of the party down here, come to Coronation Park. That is again by the X ground. So once the parade has passed by, does the crowd kind of disperse or is the party still going on? <laughs> it was crazy. I was trying to keep up with the crowd, but it's a lot of people, I don't know what made them think it was a good idea. They were bringing their bikes with them. Uh, so you get the odd bike that would block you off. You'd have to get your way around it. And then you kind of found like the stream that you could go with. And uh, that stream would take you a little bit further down. And I kept up with the buses for uh, probably about three, four blocks. Uh, and then it was just impossible. It, the crowd really bunched up. So then you saw the crowd go onto the side streets and they tried to go up a little bit further. I think they're trying to make their way down to Nathan Phillips Square. So where is where are the buses right now? How close are they to their destination of Nathan Phillips Square? Oh, I would love to tell you. I'm looking at the screen here, but I can't see exactly where they are. Uh, also, texting with my dad, who's here. <laughs> and he said that he's at York University about 20 minutes ago. He, they reached him. So uh, I would love to know. It's, it's very hard to see just because I've, uh, I'm surrounded by people here and can't get a good uh, view at the screen. But... We'll have to go to our live coverage and, and refer to that instead. So uh, I, I guess they were tentatively planning for uh, them to arrive at Nathan Phillips Square by about 1230 and then speeches and such. But I'm guessing that has all been bumped back a bit. I'm going to guess so as well, just because uh, from the parade route that we were seeing, the double-decker buses had to pause a lot. It took actually 40 minutes until I saw the first double-decker bus come out of Princess Gates. So I'm betting they are delayed a bit. As you mentioned, though, there 12:30 is roughly the time that MLSE uh, gave us that they would be around Nathan Phillips Square, and then probably about until 1:30 or two that those speeches will continue until. We'll have to be flexible, though. This is a fun day. I, I'm assuming everyone is off work. Everyone's away from school, so. Hopefully they have the time to stick around and still be part of it. Well, you know, you have to wonder, Brianna, even after the speeches, I mean, by the time that's all over, people will just be ready for happy hour at that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they've had every substance you can imagine this morning. There is the clouds of uh, cannabis, there was coffee, there was some drinking. Even on the double-decker bus, yeah. we saw a lot of gold champagne bottles that they were drinking out of. 
I think they're all feeling pretty good today, so we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> so what is the mood of the people like? I mean, for the most part, has there been any problems at all that you've heard of? You know what? No, no problems at all. And that's really the nice thing because this day is really about celebration. So if we can just tame that and really come together as a, a city to celebrate it, People have been very courteous, even this morning when I was trying to make my way through the crowd to interview different people and take different photos. Everyone was letting you butt in front of them and letting you go around. So it was really nice to see that. And even here where there's viewing parties going on in Coronation Park, there's families playing around and kicking around soccer balls, there's basketballs, there's lots of balloons and stuff. So everyone's just very, very happy and and you know, content to be here, to be a part of this historic moment. And all the kids, all the adults, like every age group you can imagine, men, women, everyone is here to come out and celebrate. What was the response with uh, Kawhi Leonard going by and, and raising the MVP trophy? I mean, I understand even people were chanting at him to stay. <laughs> that was probably the best part. I got to tell you, that was the highlight of, of at least my day. Uh, as soon as he was on the third uh, double-decker bus, and as soon as that bus came around, the crowd just lost it. They were screaming, MVP, MVP, and it was so loud that it, you had to chant with them. How could you not be a part of that, right? He was holding his trophy above his head uh, and just a huge smile on his face, something that we've been waiting forever to see. So now that he's in Toronto and has all the fans surrounding him, uh, I think he just soaked up that energy too. What has been the players' reaction? I mean, obviously they're ecstatic. They've won a championship. The fans are coming out. But it seems as if they're kind of taken back by uh, the amount of people that are there. And, and you know, they also seem to have embraced the fact that not only are they bringing a, a championship to their team, but they're bringing one to a country by exposing this game to people who perhaps weren't watching before. What was the reaction like? Yeah, and it's the lone Canadian team. This is something that we're united as as a country. I think that really brought out the masses to this event because so many people have jumped on board and there's nothing wrong with that. There's so many people celebrating it. They love every moment of this. And you could tell the players were just over the moon. They, I don't think they were expecting it at all. You, the very front uh, we saw, I believe it was the second bus, Kyle Lowry was just nodding his head and this, like, almost a smirk on his face because I don't think he actually believed it. He had the Larry O'Brien trophy that he was holding above his head and he was kissing it and the fans were just absolutely losing that right off the bat. So I, I'm, I'd be shocked if by the end of today those players don't hit the ground because it has been such a long, long week for them. Hmm. All of the celebrations as well. So what about reaction from the fans that are there? Uh, any interesting stories, people that have coming from far away? I mean, are these just people that decided to take the day off work? <laughs> you know what? A lot of people that I've been chatting with, they just had the day off. They asked if they could take their day off work or their bosses told them, you know what, and go to celebrate, go be part of it. We heard Mayor John Tory, our Toronto mayor this morning, say this is uh, We the North Day. And he encouraged all of the businesses to let their employees take the day off to go celebrate the Raptors. Really, that's what we saw. Um, a bit of a funny story. One of the people that I was talking to said, yeah, I was allowed to go to the parade. I just had to send my boss a photo of me here. 
So there has to be a little bit of proof because, uh, you know, you really do have to go celebrate part of it. So you can't take a picture of you sitting on the TV watching the global coverage from home. You can't no, do that. And, and no Photoshop either. That hey. doesn't work. <laughs> All right. Brianna Carnegie's been with us uh, reporting along the parade route for Global News. Uh, Brianna, thank you so much for the time. Have fun. <laughs> thank you. I will. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Two million marched in Hong Kong over the weekend against an extradition bill, uh, which drew a late-in-the-day apology from the top leader for handling the legislation. Uh, This as uh, mainland China tries to control more and more of Hong Kong, this extradition here, uh, extradition uh, legislation that they're talking about. Uh, Apparently, if uh, crimes are committed in Hong Kong, China uh, would, uh, I guess, then have the ability to try somebody on the mainland uh, with their rules and um, and rule of law, I guess, as opposed to Hong Kong's. Uh, and of course, residents of Hong Kong uh, up in arms about all of this. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Robert Huish, Associate Professor, Department of International Development Studies, Dalhousie University, and is on the line with us now. Robert, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Good to talk to you, Scott. Uh, the headline in the Associated Press, Two Million March in Hong Kong, Drawing Official Apology from Chief Executive. Talk about the role of the Chief Executive here and why apologizing. Yeah, this is a overwhelming example of democracy in action in Hong Kong, and it's one of the values in Hong Kong that is absolutely protected and venerated uh, within the people there. This was two million people that came out, uh, lots of them, to say the least. It's almost uh, one in seven people who are protesting, many of them quite young, and nobody told them to do it. So that's a force that, that no government can suppress. And uh, mainland China would be very aware of that. But also the top executive in Hong Kong, uh, Mrs. Lam, also is, is quite aware of that as well. So what we're seeing here is this proposal that uh, that was put forward by uh, by Mrs. Lam to change the bill uh, of extradition of Hong Kong residents is what triggered all of this. And uh, the way that you described it there was what many people in Hong Kong shared a similar fear of, that uh, for political reasons or for arbitrary reasons, that citizens in Hong Kong could be taken to mainland China for uh, for persecution. And, and that was not really explicitly written in, in the, what the proposed bill in Hong Kong was about. Uh, where this case actually came about uh, was, was the result of a Hong Kong resident who allegedly uh, murdered his girlfriend in Taiwan last year uh, and cannot be sent back there for trial. So the Hong Kong government uh, proposed to allow this extradition of suspects to, to Taiwan and then also to other countries uh, and other regions that would include uh, mainland China. So this is the, the fear, this is the, the root of the cause, and as a result, with this massive demonstration uh, that's taken place, and uh, it, it saw the, the, the stalling of that law, and now uh, Mrs. Lam is uh, in risk of losing her job, too, for proposing it. Um, so uh, you said that this had, and we had heard reports of this, that uh, this law allowed China to prosecute and, 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 and that Hong Kong was become a haven for various criminal activity, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that being said, is, is China valid in its concerns or is it just looking to have more control over Hong Kong? Yeah, so the original bill put forward here uh, was really about the extradition of people from Hong Kong to other other areas more broadly that would include 
China. So that was the original legislation over this, again, this murder case that took place in Taiwan. But since there, all of these fears have, have really run high on, on both sides. So within Hong Kong, there, there's quite a bit of fear uh, amongst political activists uh, to say that, uh, that they are sort of the last bastion uh, of, of open democracy uh, under the eye of China and that uh, they need to protect themselves at all, at, all, at all costs. Now, with China, there's all these speculations that there's money laundering, there's uh, corruption going through Hong Kong. It's, right. it's one of the major central financial centers in, in Asia. And, and it's true enough, there's, a, there's quite a few shell companies that get suspiciously absolved and dissolved mm-hmm. uh, almost overnight in Hong Kong. But all that to say is that, you know, it, the other element to this is that the sort of political nature of China's judiciary is another element that uh, that comes in this. And a lot of people in Hong Kong are saying, okay, we've got, you know, our own problems here, but the idea of opening up the door to become uh, targets of political persecution from the mainland was really, really concerning. And some of the, the leading political activists in Hong Kong have, have taken that stand, and they said, we're, this is what we're worried about. So whose idea was this initially, China's or the chief executive's? It was the chief executive's idea initially, and people... In Hong Kong, both legislators and activists read that legislation as an opportunity down the road yeah. to be further persecuted by China. And, you know, China didn't actually say, let's, let's make this happen. But the fear enough of that uh, was on the minds of many uh, in Hong Kong to say, you know, there is this commitment until 2047 that, uh, Hong, that China, mainland China needs to protect that unique identity, that unique system of governance. Uh, in Hong Kong, and any threat to that becomes tinder dry, and and it's something that we see uh, is in the crosshairs amid, you know, a trade war with China and the U.S. and sort of this political gesturing going on between those two countries. That anything that risks values, if it's justice or democracy. Uh, people will take to the streets to protect it, and that's exactly what happened over the weekend. So who does the chief executive, Carrie Lam, answer to, China or the people of Hong Kong? Ultimately, the people of Hong Kong. So uh, how, could certain... she, how could she make this sort of a mistake? Yeah, this was really miscalculated. And I think it was one of these, these issues where sometimes lawmakers just focus on the, the one issue at hand, but broad stroke the broader political climate. So again, if it's an issue if someone from Hong Kong has uh, committed a serious crime like murder or has allegedly done so, uh, is there a right and responsibility to, to persecute that, that individual? That's sort of the, the issue of it. But uh, what opening up that cauldron to, uh, to you know, removing those protections that Hong Kong residents have against any persecution or any direct oversight from China uh, is a bigger concern. Now, it, it, that leaves the question, did, did mainline China actually influence the design of that law? Hmm. We don't know. But it's something that, that people reacted to very, very strongly. It just seems odd that the independent, uh, well, which was, which was once an independent island's own government came up, suggested this. Because it, it's sort of been painted that, you know, China is slowly strangling Hong Kong. And really, that's not what it was. It's their own chief, chief executive uh, suggesting this and then apologizing for it afterwards. Yeah, and right now, uh, at the risk of, of losing her job altogether. So why would she do that if she's not in bed with Hong, with uh, China? Yeah, and, and if uh, if that is the accusation, I mean, that's what the public will 
will decide and see through. But even if she wasn't, that was pretty reckless legislation to put up. Yeah, uh, something that uh, left that kind of a door open. So I think that you know, if any leader, uh, no matter where they are in an age functioning democracy, creates policy that can severely put their own citizens at risk, they are they are rightly persecuted. Uh, through protests and through through elections that will uh, will certainly be happening. So how... So I think, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so I think Mrs. Lamb's time as being, uh, you know, the executive uh, overseer of Hong Kong, is, those days are numbered. How has China viewed all this? Is this created a problem that they really didn't even want? It's, you know, it's really difficult to get a read sometimes on what the thoughts are uh, within the, 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 the Politburo in, in Beijing or sometimes with, um, within media sources in, in, Hong, in, in, in mainland China, uh, I don't see a lot of blowing wind on the, fa- on the fire here from mainland China at this point. I think that uh, a lot of this uh, would have been speculation uh, from their point of view. Uh, there's been no active attempt to, to try to extradite people back uh, from Hong Kong. And, you know, we won't forget also that this marks the, uh, the anniversary of Tiananmen Square and uh, within China, the the attention is put on trying to keep that story uh, quiet and hushed up, and then also uh, exposed to alternative histories, which we see quite frequently come out of the, uh, the central government in Beijing. So, what has happened with this, and and are people in Hong Kong now convinced? Uh, wh- where does this stand now? I think what we're going to see is probably direct direct opposition. To the, to the government of Hong Kong by activists such as Joshua Wong. Uh, you know, he was the, he's called directly for Carrie Lam, Mrs. Lam, to, to resign. And he, if you remember back to the umbrella uh, protests and demonstrations mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, he was recently, uh, you know, put to the court system there for, uh, for leading that protest. So there's, this, is, uh, this is something where Hong Kong has now had very, strong acts of civil disobedience, uh, all under the the guise to protect their democratic rights and their freedoms of expression. So I think the energy is there with having one in seven people out in the streets protesting uh, just this past weekend. uh, There's certainly massive momentum to see political change in Hong Kong. And uh, if activists like 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 Joshua Lan managed to uh, to have more of a say, or even run for government themselves, which some people are are assuming that uh, sorry Joshua Wong will will wind up doing. Uh, that could be a really uh, contentious situation from the point of view of China to have very outspoken, very vocal uh, democratic uh, activists leading or at least influencing the government there. So is this extradition bill now scrapped? Where does it stand? Yeah, it's stalled. It would be uh, it would be thrown on the floor, and I don't think we're going to see any signatures on it too soon. Uh, so Carrie Lam has, has said, you know, it's not going to go forward, uh, but it has been written up, and it will probably disappear through the uh, the channels of, of 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 the government there. So we won't see it come back anytime soon. Uh, but again, it it just reminds us that uh, had people not put that pressure, had there not been that attention both from within Hong Kong and from the West, that could have, uh, that could have really opened, opened up a quagmire uh, in terms of legal rights and uh, political borders within that area. So you know, when this story first started, we thought Hong Kong perhaps in a precarious situation. Does this strengthen their resolve? It's, 
it's certainly the risk, I think, that we're going to see more uh, if, if more democratic rights and, uh, are sought after in Hong Kong. I mean, if, if it's right now the, the call just to say, let us be and, and we'll keep doing this, you know, two systems for one country uh, discourse and for the next 20, 30 years, that's one thing. But if there's more uh, political movement within the country to ask for more democratic rights, more autonomy, then that could really heat things up. But let's not also forget that, you know, China, the United States, uh, and other countries are sort of at a, at a loggerhead of ideals right now. Uh, it used to be that China, the United States, would were sort of content just to sort of leave each other alone. But there seems to be a constant clash of, of ideology now that's mixed into trade wars, uh, again, with the United States and then even political tensions in Canada with the uh, extradition issues here. Will we see will we see more demonstrations? I mean, again, as you mentioned, um, more divisiveness between China and 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 the United States and such. Um, uh, at the end of the day, do they want this kind of attention? Does China want this kind of a de- attention or are they trying to calm it down? Yeah, China would uh, doesn't want to have any sort of heightened suspicions around the the future of Hong Kong. This is this is not their primary concern. There's lots of issues going on within mainland China that uh, that are quite that are that are unpopular. I mean, there's there's a series of economic recessions that took place. There was the the mass slaughter of uh, pork due to a uh, of many pigs due to a due a virus that broke out there. So there's a lot of internal problems in China, and the last thing they really need to do right now is to to add this into the pile because once these messages of of alternatives to to governance come out, uh, that's seen as one of the key threats uh, with legitimizing the power of Beijing. So I think what we're going to see uh, going forward is there may be protests. Uh, as long as Mrs. Lam stays in power, will they be as large as they were? Probably not. Will they continue to be mostly peaceful? Yes, I would assume so. And from there, the question will be, what do protesters ultimately demand and want? Is it to keep pressure on their own government to ensure that the the rights that they've agreed to are upheld? Or is it to ask for different relations between Hong Kong and China down the road? And if that's the case, that will... That'll certainly draw a lot of uh, a lot of reaction from Beijing. Where does this leave uh, the political career of uh, the chief executive? Yeah, right now it would be a good time for her to start thinking about what new office she should uh, she should mm. move into. Uh, right now, the the political appetite is pretty strong. So if you've got one in seven people out in the streets demanding that you uh, step aside and be held accountable for very sloppy legislation. We can safely assume that another two, two or three people uh, would have, uh, out of that mix, uh, for every two or three people would have also uh, demanded that uh, or be unhappy with the current system of government who may not have been actually protesting. So when you've got a protest of that size, you can assume that the political ill will to that leader is, is greater than the physical number of people in the street. Uh, so h- how does that change things moving forward? What will Hong Kong do about this? I think the big thing that we've got to, we've got to wait. And, and if she does, if she does step down, I mean, is that going to happen? Is that realistic? I think it's very realistic. Yes. And, uh, in the meantime, she could uh, be replaced by, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a proxy, um, you know, acting, acting person, uh, to, to oversee that role. But then, you know, some form of elections would, would then follow. 
the question is whether or not these these uh, activists and leaders are themselves content to stay in that position of being activists, or if they would like to attempt a run at political power within within Hong Kong. There's, these are very young, uh, globally minded, uh, educated young individuals in Hong Kong, and uh, you know they certainly have the the talents and the worldly knowledge to to engage into politics and to do it with a very uh, very powerful force behind them. So uh, if we see that turn come along, uh, we can we can imagine that we'll be hearing a lot more about politics in Hong Kong down the road. So was this the chief executive just tried trying to get a handle on her count, on her country or are, is there sympathies for China there? The sympathies are are again suspected, but in my my reading of this, this was just really poor. Uh, poor legislation, uh, and and I think that if you've got someone who is writing that kind of legislation, that sloppily, or leading it, or encouraging it to be passed, uh, that that in itself should just instill a lack of confidence altogether. Uh, you know, there's been no open, written proof of any sort of direct collusion uh, with with Mr. Xi in, in Beijing, but uh, of course, it's always in the back of everyone's minds. There's uh, there's a lot of power and influence in Beijing, and Hong Kong is very important to the future development and trajectory of China. So the, uh, unless we see it in ink, we can only suspect, but uh, for now we can certainly see that uh, the leadership that's been shown over the past couple months in, in Hong Kong has been, uh, has been poor at best and has been deserved with, with protest. Uh, how concerned is the rest of the world uh, with what is going on there? Do they feel that Hong Kong has this under control? I think right now uh, there's there is a set of there is there is confidence that there's been no evidence of uh, direct attempt of pressure uh, from Beijing in that way, and and you know I'm sure that there's been a lot of uh, you know defamation against any attempt that Beijing would have to infringe upon the rights of people of Hong Kong. But again, until we actually see the proof in the pudding, uh, what we're going to do is, is, is see sort of business as usual, uh, I think, carry on. And of course, it'll be, it'll, this sort of story will, will linger with us for quite a while, uh, as it is uncertain of who is going to, to take the helm of leadership, uh, if and when. Uh, Mrs. Lamb steps away. Hmm. Dr. Robert Huish has been with us, Associate Professor, Department of International Development Studies, Dalhousie University. Uh, millions marching in Hong Kong. Uh, where does that leave them moving forward, especially when it comes to leadership? Uh, doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Take care, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The company behind the 737 MAX 8 plane says that it's important for them to focus on safety. And we'll have the planes flying only when it is safe to do so. Uh, this after Boeing over the weekend uh, apologizing in uh, a conference on, on what has happened. Let's bring in Keith Mackey. Uh, sorry, uh, yes, Keith Mackey, Mackey International. He is an aviation expert and on the line with us now. Keith, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. So how important, how significant was it for uh, the people at Boeing to say what they said this past weekend? Well, my understanding of it was uh, what they were apologizing for was the fact that they had deactivated the angle of attack disagree sensors, little lights on each pilot's panel, and they deactivated them 
from the previous version of the airplane and hadn't bothered to tell anyone. And this had uh, uh, been the procedure for well over a year, and all the flight manuals, the pilots thought these things were operational when, in fact, that they weren't. It seems that the only way that they worked was if a company buying the MAX airplane ordered an option. I've heard the figure $80,000 bantered about for the price of this option, and what it did was it provided a little indicator for each pilot to see the actual position of the angle of attack indicator. If you bought that, you got the lights reactivated. So obviously, that was a big mistake, as was putting the MCAS system in the airplane and not telling the pilots about it. So how do you how do you break through all of this? How do you how do you process this as an aviation expert? Wow, it is so complex. That nobody is clean in this. Everybody has messed up. Uh, particularly Boeing, it's pointing to their weaknesses. It's pointing to the uh, problems with the FAA certification issue. It's pointing to problems with pilot experience and training. And it it just goes full circle. There's nobody that's going to come out clean. So, and again, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but but this system uh, came with two different options. Is that correct? It it came with one, and then you had to purchase the other. Was that correct? Well, everyone thought it came with one. But, in fact, if you didn't purchase the optional one, you didn't get the one that used to be standard equipment. But what's worse is Boeing didn't tell you that the system didn't work. If you'd been operating the previous version, the NG version of the uh, the airplane, it worked on that. And since the, uh, the indicator and the software was on board this airplane, the assumption was by everyone that it also worked. And it, was, it took a year before we found out that it did not function. It was not activated. Um, was there any way of them knowing the outcome here? Was there any way, how, how do you, is this just oversight, carelessness, um, or did they just not know what was going to happen? Well, here's my concern with that, Scott. Uh, the problem is they did a number of things wrong in designing this NCAS system, uh, uh, first, they didn't bother to tell anyone about it. It isn't in any of the pilot operational manuals. When they first designed the system, it had an authority of 0.6 tenths of a degree to move the horizontal stabilizer. But somehow or other, during the flight testing procedure, without notifying the FAA, they quadrupled that authority. When the airplane was finally certified, right. the system had four times the authority. It went to 2.5 degrees. And what's more, it depended on a single angle of attack indicator. So if that indicator failed, the system didn't look at the other one and say, wait a minute, Charlie, you're bad because the other guy's telling me the proper information, so I'm going to disregard you. Instead, it activated the system. And, of course, if the angle of attack sensor is defective, it's going to activate the system, but it's not going to fix itself. So it's going to repeatedly activate the system with a great deal of movement of the stabilizer. And uh, uh, unless something's done immediately to deactivate the system, the nose can get pitched so far down and the speed so high that the pilots 
wouldn't have the strength to override it. Right. And that's precisely what happened. So uh, how this type of a system could be allowed to be installed, and my understanding is that the test pilots, the test flew the airplane, did not know the system was on there either. So apparently the airplane was certified and the system never properly vetted. So how would these two pilots that were involved in these crashes, how did it get to that point? What happened then? So these pilots were not aware of this system when they found themselves losing control? That's correct. Now, in the first instance, uh, the airplane had had the problem on the, the previous four flights, and the pilots had been able to realized that it was the same as a runaway stabilizer trim system and they were able to deactivate it and fly the airplane to the destination on the flight the previous night to the accident flight there was a pilot from another airline on the jump seat when this happened Mm -hmm. and things were getting out of hand and he said hey guys just reach up and turn this thing off oh hey thanks so they never communicated this problem it certainly should have been made well known what was going on with this airplane, but apparently the pilots that flew it the next day had no idea of the previous problems or how to correct it when it occurred. Uh, there's been lots of reports through all of this that Boeing and the FAA are too close, that um, y- you know they wanted regulation simplified, and that's how we got to where we are. Um, how much of that will change moving forward? Well, funny you should ask. <laughs> Seems that Boeing is in the process of introducing a new version of the 777. that will be called the 777X. And it was to be demonstrated at the Paris Air Show next week. Not going to happen. The engines are not going to work the way designed. It has huge engines on it, the biggest engines ever produced. They produce 145,000 pounds of thrust. All four engines on an original 727 only produced 100,000 pounds of thrust. So you can imagine how big this engine is. The engine in part of their testing did not pass. So that means the airplane can't make its first flight. It also means all the airlines that have been promised delivery in short order of this airplane are probably not going to get it for another year. So the problems beyond the MAX 737 are compounded by this new development. Can Boeing survive this? Oh, I'm sure that they'll survive it. Uh, Yes, but I'm sure that uh, they have learned a lot of lessons. And you'd ask me about the FAA-Boeing relationship. Yeah. Well, one of the problems with the FAA is budgetary. Yeah. They uh, don't have the budget to have, engin- they don't have the, the talent, the trained engineers, yeah. to go to the Boeing factory. If they do, Boeing will probably hire them all. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's very difficult to monitor this process. And what is going to happen now is while Boeing has developed this software fix, now, hopefully starting next week, the FAA is going to begin observing flights to be sure that it works properly. So it's a very difficult situation. The FAA can't watch every single thing that Boeing does, and Boeing has to demonstrate that they're to be trusted, that they won't 
do things that they would know that the FAA would not approve if they knew. So where is this now? Uh, Wall Street Journal reporting Sunday that Boeing could start testing these as early as this week. So um, have, have, have a certain number of planes had the fix installed and they're just waiting to be tested? Or I thought these had been uh, testing had been ongoing for a while now. Well, <laughs> that was my understanding. It was Boeing's testing. But apparently now it's reached the point where they're going to demonstrate their testing to the FAA. Now, last week in the Wall Street Journal, there was a story about the airplane not flying again until December, which seemed rather ridiculous. But uh, nobody's uh, put a timetable on this. Both uh, Southwest and American Airlines that operate the airplanes here in the U.S. are indicating sometime after Labor Day. But uh, really... Nobody has a, a a hard and fast fix on this. How do you when this pro, Sorry, when go ahead. Is all, when the process is all sorted out, this seven 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 X has not yet been certified, so it's going to have to go through whatever new certification procedure Boeing and the FAA hmm. work out to prevent problems like this from occurring in the future. Once you have a fix, uh, a software fix, whatever, for this, how do you test it? How do you, do you get two pilots, they take it up and they, you know, uh, do some tricky maneuvers? How, how do you test for this sort of thing? Well, it's, it's a rather simple fix to come right down to it. What they've done is they've required that both angle of attack sensors detect the problem simultaneously or the system won't activate. They've also decreased the authority of the system, possibly back where it should have been in the first place at 0.6 tenths of a degree. And they've put a system in there where the system will only activate once. It won't repeatedly activate if the fault remains. So those three things were the missing ingredients to make the system safe. It never should have been certified without them to begin with. Hmm. So does each individual plane have to be taken up and tested with this equipment in it? No. Uh, so they just, they just get a software fix and, and they test that and then ship it off to every plane? Exactly. And, you know, these software fixes, like any other device that's complex and relies on electronics, are, are rather common fixes for everything. Yeah. So this is just like a normal patch that you would for any IT situation? Yeah, really, it, it is. Uh, they're not changing anything mechanically, as far as I know, unless there may be some wiring necessary to make the angle of attack sensors redundant. When it comes to the legalities of, of these two crashes and these two cases and, and what we've seen and, and what Boeing has obviously uh, admitted so far, how do they how do they pay for this? How do they compensate people for this? I don't know. I imagine there's probably going to be what we call class action lawsuits involved. I'm sure that practically every passenger's family now has a law firm representing them and suing Boeing. Yeah. But that may not be very efficient, and it may be that uh, everything's combined and we see how it ends up. Uh, in the United States, we're sort of, sort of a litigious society here that uh, it's unclear how it'll all shake out. How difficult has this period been for the airline industry and for airlines in general having these, these planes out of service and just what this has done to the industry? 
Well, it certainly hurt them. Uh, they've suffered financially by having to have these expensive investments parked on the ramp without being able to use them. They've lost capacity. In some cases, they've been able to drag out other airplanes that might otherwise be on their way to retirement and put them in service to fill the gap until these airplanes are again available. But this is a, uh, a problem. It isn't the first time it's happened in the industry. It's happened a number of times before. And the solutions have been the same. Are, how concerned is Boeing that no one will want to get on these, even when they are fixed? I mean, there's still some people that are pretty, you know, superstitious about this sort of stuff. I mean, okay. could, could that be? Could that make an impact if people just don't want to get on them? Well, they've done quite a bit of polling, and <laughs> in my opinion, most of the polls are like political polls. Yeah. Some of the polls indicate that only 25% of the passengers who might ride this airplane are troubled by the fact that they'd be riding a MAX. In others, I've heard up to 67% would be uh, concerned about it. But I'm sure that once the airplane gets back in service and it flies for a period of time successfully, as I'm sure it will, uh, that the airplane will once again take its place and people won't realize even that they're on a MAX. Uh, do you think there'll be some rebranding in any way? No, I really don't. I think rebranding would be a mistake. Uh, everybody would uh, catch on to it quickly, and they'd all know why you did it. So I don't think that that's a very good idea. Is this, will this, in the end, make air travel safer? Well, I would have to say yes to the extent that Boeing was able to design a system as flawed as the MCAS system and have it installed on a fleet of airplanes, taking two crashes to really point out its weakness, eliminating that possibility of ever occurring again. These accidents were certainly predictable. And uh, uh, hopefully we won't ever get in this situation again. Keith Mackey's been with us, Mackey International. He is an aviation expert. The company behind the uh, MAX 8 plane said that it's important for them to focus on safety and that they will have the planes flying again only when it is safe. Keith, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.